So we just thought this would be <coughs> because, um, intelligent design comes in neatly into th- us thinking through that spectrum of sort of relationships between sort of theology and science, and Pete can bring something hmm. unique into that equation. So hand over to you, Pete. Okay. And we're going to swap places here. I am, um, I should forewarn you, I'm recording uh, tonight because I have a podcast channel uh, with Damaris Trust. Um, but uh, if uh, you're not happy with me broadcasting our discussion times, I can just edit out the discussion times and I'll just broadcast it as, as if I did a, a lecture. But I'm not going to do a lecture. Uh, I'm going to um, break up what I do into three um, organic parts and leave time after each part for questions on that part so we'll kind of build as we go through. Um, my background is in uh, philosophy, that's what I studied at university and I did a BA and MA and an MPhil in philosophy and I'm now a part-time uh, lecturer uh, at a college in Norway, um, a pr- assistant professor of um, worldview and communications thinking about worldviews and media and things. Um, but I also work for a Christian educational charity based in Southampton called the Damaris Trust, and I do A-level conferences for sixth form students in philosophy and ethics, and I do writing for various publishers and speaking at events like this. And so I do a bit of this, that, and everything, but it's uh, all to do with kind of Christian philosophy and uh, apologetics. Um, my background as far as this uh, subject of intelligent design is concerned is that I uh, started uh, out when I came to a view on the whole topic as a, what would be described as a theistic evolutionist. And then uh, I took a couple of years where I was reading primarily the debate in the philosophy of science uh, about what counts as science, what the ground rules of science should be and so on. And I became convinced that the intelligent design crowd, as it were, had their philosophy of science right, which then opened up for me an investigation of well, if they've got the philosophy of science right, have they actually got the, the science right? Uh, and I came to think that, indeed, uh, they do. Um, although, I know, I can judge their arguments in terms of logical validity and the philosophy of science and stuff. I'm reliant upon reading other sources, of course, for knowledge of the actual um, scientific evidence. I'm not a scientist, but I'm a philosopher with an interest in the philosophy of science. Um, so I moved uh, into the ID camp because of that. And not because my uh, reading of any biblical texts or anything changed. It was my understanding of of philosophy of science and then um, looking at the the data available through kind of a new uh, grid of looking at at things, as it were. Let me start off with a couple of examples. Uh, This uh, freak spaghetti arrangement of alphabet spaghetti. You, of course, immediately look at this uh, advert... How about eating out, spelt in uh, alphabet spaghetti, and you think to yourselves, gosh, what a patient cameraman that must have been, tipping out so many tins of spaghetti until they just by chance happened to arrange themselves into a useful phrase for an advert. No, of course, you don't think that when you look at this. You look at this and you immediately, uh, and just intuitively, infer that there was some intelligent design, some intelligence uh, causing that arrangement of the letters. To be able to detect something as designed is a sort of intuitive, common-sense faculty that we humans have, and we rely upon that faculty uh, in everyday life, uh, as well as in various scientific 
fields like um, forensic science, you know, um, did he fall or was he pushed? You know, was it an accident or was it by design? And, and so on. Um, lots of different scientific fields could be mentioned. Here's a, a second um, example just to start our thinking of. This um, bacteria, this life form, is the product of intelligent design. Everyone agrees about that because in 2010, a team led by Dr. Craig Ventner assembled an artificial version of the DNA for a very simple form of bacteria and they inserted that into a cell from which the original um, DNA had been extracted. So they assembled a, a, thin, a synthetic uh, DNA strand, put it into a cell that the original DNA had been removed from and then let nature take its course and it indeed did replicate. So intelligence had at least a part to play in the existence of these organisms. So that the assembled genome that they had made would be recognisable as man-made, four of the DNA sequences uh, uh, contained uh, a string of, of amino acids that code in code, in a certain code, spelt out an email address. Uh, the names of many of the people in the project and a few famous quotations. So, you know, supposing you were a sort of Martian biologist in the future or whatever, and you came across this life form... Um, and uh, you were studying it, and you suddenly noticed that if you used a certain code to interpret the string of uh, amino acids in this section of DNA in this life form, it spelt out an email address and famous quotations and things. Now, would it not be rational for you to think, ah, intelligence played a role in creating this? So intelligent design theory is often misunderstood, mischaracterized by people who don't like it. Um, and whether or not you uh, agree with the position this evening, that's you know, not my aim, it's just to give you a sort of introduction uh, and at least to uh, make it clear what it is that one is either agreeing with or disagreeing with, rather than some of the, the straw men that get put up uh, in the debate. So William Dembski, as famous uh, in this field, says intelligent design is the study of patterns in nature best explained as the product of intelligence. So you're looking for a pattern that's in nature that is best explained as the product of intelligence. Marcus Ross says ID is a, a philosophically minimalistic position asserting that real design exists, not just the appearance of design, but real design exists in nature and is empirically detectable by the methods of science. Uh, it's actually quite hard nailing down this kind of definition because, of course, if you look at the, 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 the Craig Ventner life form, you say, well, it's, it's, isn't that in nature? And we know that that was so, you know, ID is true. But just to say that would be to make, you know, a very paltry uh, claim um, it's obviously to do with saying that that was actually real design detectable within the, the kind of inherent fabric of nature that uh, is best explained by an intelligence that's not us. It's kind of... There are, I think, three core claims made by intelligent design theory. And if you agree with all three of these claims, then I would count myself as an ID theorist, someone who supports that position, and if you disagree with any one of them, then you probably wouldn't count yourself as an ID theorist. But you could agree with some whilst disagreeing with others. You can be closer 
more sympathetic to ID than, than other people might be, and so on. There's a whole kind of spectrum here, as Rob was saying. And ID, because of its, that minimalistic claim that it's making, is compatible with a whole host of different views about subjects like evolution, about subjects like the meaning of Genesis, and so on. Um, so, these are the three core claims as I see them. First of all, that there exist reliable design detection criteria, some kind of rule that we can apply to things, run the evidence through that rule, that criteria, and reliably get out the information that something was the product of design. Not that you can get out reliably the information that it wasn't, you can't tell the negative, the claim is only that we've got some, some criteria that can tell us the positive. Some reliable design detection criteria. Secondly, that when applied to empirical evidence within the natural world, inherent in the natural world, that you can, you can make that application in such a way that you get a, a positive identification of design kind of out of the end, and that making that kind of argument is a scientific thing to do, rather than a philosophical thing, or a theological thing, or a religious thing, or a faith thing to do. The first two claims are more important than the last one, because, thinking like this, if you thought, yes, we've got some reliable criteria for detecting design, there's some evidence from the natural world that passes through that criteria that tells us that there was actually real design in the world out there. But I don't think that's science. What are you going to do? Transfer all the funding to the philosophy department in the university in order to better understand how nature works? Or perhaps shift your definition of what you mean by science slightly? Um, my money in that situation would be on the money continuing to go to the science department rather than going to the philosophers or the theolo theology department in order to, to understand reality. Now, I also think that, that this, saying that you agree with those three things, only really becomes controversial when the design in question seems to point to some kind of transcendent designer a designer that's not human. Um, it certainly comes controversial when it, you're pointing perhaps to something maybe supernatural, a sort of supernatural interpretation of who that designer might be. But as I'll, I'll point out again later, the question of, of is something designed, yes or no, is separate from the question of, of who did the designing? What's the nature of that designer? Um, once you know that something was designed, as David Hume a sceptical Scottish philosopher argued a long time ago, all that tells you is something with intelligence and sufficient power to bring about the particular effect that you're looking at created it. But you can't infer more. You can't say, on that evidence alone, well, that's God, isn't it? Because the term God means a lot more than someone with you know, this amount of power and some intelligence that would allow them to do this. Um, so you can't justify a belief in God in the full sense of the term just on the basis of a design argument, argued David Hume. And interestingly, the ID crowd pretty much seem to agree with David Hume about that, and are very careful in, in saying what the evidence can justify saying and what it can't.
So before we look at those three sections, those three points, any questions there of, of clarification and so on before we launch into the three sort of sections? We're clear on what the claim is and, and so on. Just your last comment, mm. that um, observation of something being designed by a, a supernatural power or something you know, beyond human mm. doesn't uh, necessarily um, uh, imply that that was God. Yeah. Would that apply? Would, would you apply that same rule to the whole of creation, the created universe? I'm just thinking mm. of the appeal in the New Testament that mm. um, what can be known about God is in Romans is evident from yeah. from creation yeah. or worse that effect. So would would you apply that on the on the macro uh, side of things, or are you are just talking yeah. about perhaps individual items of creation? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, of course, that verse says what what can be known about God, which could be taken as implying that there are things that are true about God that can't be known from observing creation, that could only be known by revelation, perhaps. Um, So even there, you could kind of go that way. But also, I think, this is just talking about design. It's talking about the arrangement of things in reality. It's not, for example, talking about the question of, well, why are there any things at all? The kind of issue that might be addressed by a cosmological argument, which would tell you something else about the nature of the the being behind reality, or look at the moral argument in moral experience to tell you something else about God's nature, and so on. So I would use, um, I mean, ID isn't strictly a design argument, it's kind of a precursor to a design argument in natural theology, and when I was giving a case, if I were giving a case for the existence of God on the basis of those kind of arguments, I'd use a range of arguments to kind of gradually build up the photo picture of the being that it's pointing towards and say this is looking increasingly like the kind of being described in the Bible. Um, so on, on both counts, yes, I'm saying design can only tell you something. God would certainly be a candidate. He'd be in the frame. He'd be in the lineup. <laughs> as it were um, but you couldn't just say well it must have been no, him what did it yeah, yeah in and of itself yeah, yeah. Okay. I haven't got a question just a comment mm. I think what you presented so far is self-evident it's, uh, it holds together well but I think the controversial bit is the bit you're about to talk about now <laughs> <laughs> the protection criteria okay, yeah. Yeah. It, to my mind that's quite a difficult thing to um, finalise yeah. But I'm sure you'll do <laughs> Well, we'll go there. Well, let's go there. Let's have a look at design detection criteria. Th- there are a number of different criteria that have been proposed, and it's not necessarily a matter of, of choosing the one that works. You might think that several work, are compatible with each other, um, are mutually reinforcing, uh, and so on. I'm going to particularly talk about one that I favour, but I also want to bracket it with the the remarks about when I put up the the spaghetti advert there is an intuitive level of design detection that humans in in everyday situations in in scientific fields we we just seem to have this faculty of being able to to say that yeah obviously the best explanation of that is is design 
You know, if you, if you were the first astronaut out of the spaceship to land on Mars, walk up to the so-called face on Mars, uh, dust it off and go, good grief, actually it is a giant sculpted head. Not that I, yes, it, probably not. But when you do that, you would immediately, you know, you don't have to run through some kind of argument or scientific process of investigation to be rational in thinking that designs the best explanation of a giant sculpted head. You know? um, so there are at least some situations where we can have this intuitive recognition of design, which I think puts the burden of, of proof on the person who wants to say, I know it looks like it's designed, but actually that's misleading. And here's why. Here's my evidence that's sufficient to undermine that intuitive impression of design. So that's sort of a, if it walks like a duck? Yeah, yeah. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Until someone, you know, shows me that it's only an animatronic duck made for some sort of film set or something. Um, what Richard Swinburne would call the principle of credulity. You should trust that things are the way they seem to be until you've got evidence that you're mistaken. Because if you did the reverse, you'd never believe anything. <laughs> because you'd apply, you'd apply scepticism to, to any evidence that I brought forward to try and get you out of your scepticism. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, uh, and whether or not people can indeed, you know, uh, people like Richard Dawkins will say, biology is the study of complicated things that, give the, that, that look designed. But that's misleading, and here's why. It would depend on whether or not you think here's, here's why had sufficient clout to really undermine the intuitive impression. Um, but what design theorists are saying is we can actually go beyond an intuitive kind of argument and, and actually have some, some objective kind of criteria that we can use. My favourite one is the one put forward by William Dembski, who's a philosopher and mathematician from America. Um, this is particularly published in his book, The Design Inference, which came out with um, Cambridge University Press. Um, and he's also written up various books at different sort of popular and academic levels applying this way of thinking to design detection. And he comes up with this uh, joint uh, two conditions. I've got a little video, uh, we'll see what the volume level's like, that explains um, uh, this as well. But basically, you're looking for something that is, that is contingent, that didn't have to be the way that it is, that is very, very complex, very unlikely, and it, it sets a sort of universal probability bound, and not only is complex, but also matches an, in, uh, an independently given pattern. Not just a pattern that you've read off the event itself, but one that you could know about independently of knowing about the event that, that you're looking at. So yeah, the illustration he quite often uses is, if we have a target on the wall and an arrow sails through the air and hits the middle of the target, you would go, ah, that's a good archer. But if you just have a blank wall and an arrow sails through the air and hits the wall, and someone walks up to the arrow and draws a target round it, then you think, well, that's cheating. <laughs> you know. um, but, uh, the, you know, the, there's the place that the arrow, wherever it hits on the wall, is one place it could hit out of all the possible places it could hit. So it's, it's complex, it's unlikely. But it's only when you get the combination of that unlikely event happening... That, it, that the arrow should be exactly there rather than anywhere else, with an independently given pattern 
that it's matching, that it's hitting, that you infer design. So I'm going to give you some free resources at the end. One of them is a, a paper that I published in a, a philosophy journal um, arguing that I could look at the work of various people who disagreed with intelligent design theory, be they theistic evolutionists or atheists, and show from their work that they actually put forward um, this uh, design detection method as a reliable design detection method. So people like Carl Sagan and Richard Dawkins and um, uh, Keith Ward and so on rely upon that kind of unlikely event plus objective pattern to infer design or indeed to forestall uh, inferring design um, and that they actually uh, both implicitly and sometimes explicitly endorsed that way of thinking about things although they disagreed with ID. And I think when you find thinkers independently arriving at the same kind of solution to a problem, when they come from a, a disagreeing worldview backgrounds and so on, that tends to increase your confidence that that's probably quite a sensible solution to that issue. Um, so I've got a paper uh, on this. Um, so it's saying, given something that we're, we, if we're going to convince ourselves rationally that it is designed, we need to show that it's improbable and, and suitably patterned. Uh, improbability, complexity, they're, they're kind of synonymous. Specification is this objectively given pattern. He says when you get both of these things, then it's rational to infer design because, well, in our experience, whenever we see something that exhibits both of those qualities and we know where it came from, invariably it came from an intelligence. And so you see exactly the same quality in something, even when you don't already know where it came from, it's rational to infer that it probably came from an intelligence. Yeah. Just to help me understand that, going back to the poster of the spaghetti letters, yeah. would the complexity be synonymous of the uh, possible sequence mm. in which those letters could fall out of that can and arrange themselves? Yeah. So that's your complexity mm. side of the sum, mm. and the specification side of the, the equation mm. is the fact that we have a recognisable alphabet that we and language that we yeah. when certain letters are put in certain sequences, yeah. they form words that we understand. Yes. So complexity would be the it, the arrangement. Therefore, yeah. to the conclusion that someone has purposely put them in place. That's well, right. Yeah. 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 So it's the, the the rules of English grammar exist independently of that event. Yeah. Only certain sequences of letters spell words and are grammatically make sense. Yeah. Um, and here's one that does. But, but also, those letters didn't have to be there. They could have been anywhere in any sequence. It, so it's unlikely that they're in that particular sequence. But it's the combination of the two. You know, as I say in the, um, the God New Evidence video, if, if I take your um, cash card, put it in the hole in the wall machine, punch in four numbers and start accessing your money... And you complain and say, Peter, you know, you've nicked my number. How dare you? And I say, hey, any number, any four-digit number I put into this machine is equally as unlikely as any other. You know, there's nothing to be explained here in terms of me having filched your number, having designs on your money, anything. But because that four-digit number is the one that will access your account, <laughs> it's those two things together. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if I have a long string of Scrabble letters drawn at random from a Scrabble bag, that's an unlikely event. 
It's complex, unlikely, but it's not specified. If I draw DOG from a bag, it's specified, but it's not very unlikely. We know that by chance it's quite likely that small words, short words, would get spelt if I'm just drawing letters at random. But if you were drawing letters out of the Scrabble bag and they formed this sequence of letters, <laughs> all things do become, have become, and will become, some by nature, some by art, design, some by chance, Plato, laws, then you would say, hang on, someone's played a trick on me here, <laughs> Some, something's going on. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the argument would go, premise one, specified complexity reliably points to intelligent design. Premise two, at least one aspect of nature exhibits specified design. Conclusion, therefore, at least one aspect of nature reliably points to intelligent design. Now that's, you know, that's clearly logically valid. If those two premises are true, that conclusion follows. So the only questions are, well, is, the, is this a reliable test? Are there any reliable tests? And are there things within the fabric of nature that pass through the test? But if, if, if you agree with those two, then that conclusion that follows. And, and then if you want to argue about, is this conclusion scientific or not, well, that's obviously a lot less important than, well, is it true? Um, note that ID, I know you're uh, reading some background material at the moment that might make this claim, uh, primed me. Uh, ID is not a gap, gaps argument, or, or what I would call as a philosopher, an argument from ignorance. An argument from ignorance has the following form. Premise one, I don't know how nature could cause X, therefore God did it. Okay. And there's a glaring gap in the argument itself, when it's a gap argument, of premise two is missing here. We have a logically valid argument, not an argument from ignorance. It's all about, are those premises true? So I think the accusation that it is a, an argument from ignorance, you're just saying, oh, we don't know how nature could have done it, and then leaping to your favourite design, designer um, candidate... Is, is not a fair characterization of what the, the argument's doing. <coughs> so this is the, the name of the paper that I'll, I'll point you to later. Um, just one example from it, Richard Dawkins. You can just about make out the, the shadow of this rock. looks a little bit like the, the face of John Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, if you squinted it in the right way. Yeah. He, Dawkins, uh, in Climbing Mount Improbable, uh, draws a <laughs> distinction between things that are designed and things that are designoid. Things that look designed on first glance, but actually that's misleading. Okay. Okay. And he illustrates the concept with this. And he says, you know, at first, you know, it, it looks at first glance like it might be designed, but think about it a bit more clearly, you'll see that it, that's just a coincidence. It's just designoid. Once you've been told... You can see that it looks, but some people don't see it, and it's not a very close resemblance, and it's only from one angle, and, and so on. And he contrasts that Kennedy-esque rock face with the president's faces in Mount Rushmore. Yeah, and he says, they're obviously not accidental. They've got design written all over them. Okay, so he admits that intelligence can outperform the design-producing resources of nature in such a way as to leave clear empirical evidence of itself. 
as significant in and of itself. And he says, while a rock can weather into the shape of a nose seen from a certain vantage point, that's designoid, but Mount Rushmore, its foreheads are clearly designed. So even if there are hard cases, there are clear cases. And, and hard cases don't expunge the existence of clear cases. Yeah. Uh, and he argues like this, he says, the sheer number of details in which Mount Rushmore faces resemble the real things. Number of details, amount of complexity, resemble the real things, specification, is too great to have come about by chance. The weather could have done the same job, it's possible, but of all the possible ways of weathering a mountain, only a tiny minority, complexity, would be the speaking likenesses of four particular human beings, specification. So Dawkins is implicitly using the criteria to justify design inference. Even if we didn't know the history of Rushmore, we'd estimate the odds against its foreheads being carved by accidental weathering as astronomically high. Yes. And even more explicitly in an op-ed in Free Inquiry, he uh, says, specified complexity takes care of the sensible point that any particular rubbish heap is improbable in the unique disposition of its parts. A pile of detached watch parts tossed in a box is as improbable in that sense, as a fully functioning, genuinely complicated watch. Both of them are one arrangement of all of those parts out of all the possible arrangements. Mm -hmm. So you could give them the same improbability in, in, in that sense. You know. But then he says, what is specified about a watch is that it's improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. And he says, Behe, another design theorist from Dembski, correctly posed the problem of specified complexity as something that needs explaining, says Richard Dawkins. So that's what I have to say about design detection criteria. I'll open the floor to questions again. <coughs> so when we, I remember once emailing you, because I, 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 was it, you get those... Um, Claims where you get someone burnt their toast and they see the face of Mary on yeah. and, 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 and things like yeah. that, you know. And, um, would you sort of say, well, that might be? Um, <laughs> it, it has a specificity in the complexity. But it's uh, it's to do with yeah, it's to do with the level. Like Dawkins is sort of admitting that there are obvious cases, but there might be hard cases. Um, there might be cases where you might go, well, maybe, maybe not. Who, who knows? You want to look at it, the burnt bit of toast or whatever, and see, well, how amazingly close is the specification? How much does it really look like? Or is it just one of those patterns that, that when someone says, oh, that, that cloud looks a bit like an elephant, you can kind of go, hmm, well, I suppose so. A bit, or, you know. But if you saw cloud writing in the sky... It wouldn't be just a case of saying, well, I suppose some people could imagine that that spells, you know, sail on a comet this week or whatever. <laughs> um, so it's how close is the specification, how tight is that match, and also how unlikely. Now, how many pieces of toast are being burnt every day, every year, etc., etc. So the, the relevant kind of um, probability band would, might change from situation to situation. Different sciences will put different probability bounds on sort of doing drug trials or whatever to see if it's effective or um, and, and so on. But Dembski um, puts forward a universal bound and he calculates, look, there are this number of fundamental particles 
the universe is this old, which is the standard theory. Um, events can happen, you know, no faster than the Planck time. So the number of possible events that could have happened in the entire history of the observable universe is no more than 10 to the power of 120, 150-ish. Which are just huge numbers. He basically says, supposing we dedicated the entire resources of the known universe to trying to produce this match, would it still be unlikely? Then I think I'm justified in inferring design and say, well, yeah, I'm probably you could lower that bound quite a lot. But he's kind of playing it really safe because you want to try and have a criteria that will err on the side of caution. You don't want to let false positives through. You, uh, so you want to try and kind of be as rigorous as you can about it. But even being pretty darn rigorous about it, it seems to me that there are, and this would be a later claim, that there are things that are sufficiently improbable to be considered for going through the criteria. Um, so they're, 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 they're quite careful on kind of saying, when you claim, oh, well, you know, lots of unlikely stuff happens every day, maybe that's just a coincidence, or that could have happened by chance. It's like, well, what are the chances? What are the, the available resources? Well, what are the numbers? You know, and sometimes that might be a bit of a back-of-an-envelope kind of calculation, but if it's, you know such a big number that you'd have to be so many orders of magnitude out that it becomes a sort of case of special pleading to say, to keep on saying, oh, chance could have done it, chance could have done it. Um, it, it seems to me that you, you need to know what specification is. So, for instance, if you go back to the first thing, mm. you need to know English. Yes. To know that it's telling you something if you spoke French. Yeah. You might know because French isn't there. It's a fairly similar language, yeah. but if you spoke Chinese yeah, yeah. or any other language that is totally different, you wouldn't know that what the pattern was. That's right. So that's my first comment. The second comment is I'm very interested to see that um, Mr. Dawkins is uh, supporting that because although you can use that approach to um, prove that there is intelligent design, because it, that presupposes that you have this knowledge of English or whatever it is that the, is the design pattern they're using to mm, pick. Mm. <clears throat> and then, if, you, if the opposite is the case, where you're trying to say, well, there is no God, then all, all the time you're saying, well, there is no pattern. And if there's no pattern, you also don't know what the pattern is. <laughs> go together, right? Mm. So, um, it's interesting that you mm. because it seems like a blind alley for him. Yes, well, we, we will get an opportunity to come back to <coughs> Dawkins' way of dealing with this. Um, a little bit uh, later, but it is it is very interesting. It, 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 he basically counters what to me seems like countering the evidence with his philosophical presupposition, and he says it's fine to infer design so long as that explanation eventually tracks back to something that has a fully naturalistic explanation. Well, no, I, mean, I disagree with him as well, but that's, that's where he's way of doing it. He says, ultimately, the explanation... Now, obviously, the correct explanation for a watch is intelligent design. But that's fine for him, because he wants to explain humans in terms of a process of evolution from very simple beginnings that had no design involved. Or back to a beginning of a Big Bang that just happened of its own accord, or whatever. 
Um, so as so long as he, you can track back the explanation to an explanation that doesn't involve intelligence, he's fine with it. It's only when you want to say, actually, I think the best ultimate explanation is intelligence, that alarm bells ring for him as an atheist. So he's recognised the complexity, but because he doesn't...
some people I read consider to be an order of most probable to least probable. That, that's just my kind of view on these things, but certainly these are separate things. You, can, you could re reject some of these whilst believing others. Some of them are linked, some of them are separable issues. So the ancient Earth hypothesis, that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. Um, the progress hypothesis, as it's called, the idea that life's changed and it's gone from relatively simple early on to more complex later on over time. The common ancestry hypothesis is that yeah, every existing form of life is related by common ancestry to previous slightly different forms of life in a kind of continuous chain, as it were. That's different from the universal common ancestry hypothesis, which even some atheistic scientists are now rejecting, that life originated at only one place. So that all subsequent forms of life are all related backwards in time to the same original ancestor. And those two claims are different because you could, you could say life arose in a couple of different separate places, but common ancestry true in, in as much as anything that you point at today, you know, a cat or a dog or whatever, is related by common ancestry over time to an original different form of life and so on. The Darwinian hypothesis that there's a naturalistic explanation for that macroevolutionary development of life from simple to complex. And that, that explanation is primarily an extrapolation of this observed microevolution where you have uh, differences in the population in, in, from the genes being slightly different and the law of natural selection kind of weeding out those that, that don't work as well as others or, or giving a, a greater propensity in the population as time goes on to those that have a survival advantage through that difference. And that this process of kind of chance, change plus regular kind of weeding produces this pattern of complexity over time. And then the naturalistic origins hypothesis that life arose from non-living matter without any special creative activity being involved. It just happened by the inherent capacities of nature that it already had. So those are, if you take all that together, that's kind of standard kind of evolutionary viewpoint. But you can certainly, for example, doubt that the naturalistic origins hypothesis is true whilst believing everything else on the list. Or um, doubt the Darwinian hypothesis while still believing in common ancestry. Doubt universal common ancestry whilst believing in common ancestry, uh, and so on. Um, so uh, there's a lot of variation in the way that people will subscribe to more or less of this list, as it were. Um, and actually, uh, I think you could subscribe to everything on this list and still count yourself an ID proponent because you thought there were arguments not in the realm of biology that, that were intelligent design arguments, like a fine-tuning argument, and so on. Or, uh, I, mean, I mean, also the origin of life issue is, is, strictly speaking, not part of evolutionary theory, because a process of evolution can't explain anything until you've got something that's capable of evolving in the first place. You know, that's, not, that's just a, a pre-condition of that kind of theory. So you could look at, at evidence from various realms, including cosmic fine-tuning, 
more local origin of life information in, in macromolecules and the issue of what's called irreducible complexity, which is a sort of subclass of specified complexity that's particularly in the little biological machines and cells and, and, and things. Um, so if you've been watching the God New Evidence video, you probably know a bit about the fine-tuning and so on, basically the idea of there are basic laws and initial conditions and so on that the universe has, and if you, you know, had a universe-generating machine represented the way our universe actually is, um, took one of the laws, changed the strength up or down the scale um, by a, a little fraction and then pressed the create a universe button, the chances are that you would create a dull, lifeless, uninteresting, uncomplicated universe, perhaps one in which you don't even have nuclear f physics happening, let alone chemistry, let alone biology. Uh, maybe it wouldn't last very long, it would collapse, or, or it would just be there, but just, you know, just have quarks in it forever, or all sorts of ways that the universe can be that are not, not life-permitting, and only a very small percentage of possible ways it can be that are life-permitting. Um, local fine-tuning would be more things like um, where in the galaxy is the Earth, and the, the, the fact that we've got a moon, and all sorts of things. I've got a little video here that talks about some of um, astronomer Hugh Ross, who's a, a Christian uh, astronomer from America, <coughs> he estimates that there's less than one chance in 10 to the power of 215 of even one habitable planet existing just by natural processes, by chance and so on. He says not even one planet would be expected by natural processes alone to possess the necessary conditions to sustain life. Um, uh, so the fine-tuning of the universe is kind of one level of possible design. It's a necessary condition of there being a, a habitable planet somewhere, but it's not a sufficient condition. There are other conditions that must be, be met. This is a very interesting book, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, by Peter D. Ward and Donald Brownlee, who are atheists. Um, and they say in this book, if some godlike being could be given the opportunity to plan a sequence of events with the express goal of duplicating our Garden of Eden, our habitable planet, that power would face a formidable task. With the best intentions, but limited by natural laws and materials, they say, it is unlikely that Earth could ever be truly replicated. A very fascinating um, book. <laughs> Biological macromolecules, things like DNA, RNA, of course evolution can't explain the origin of things capable of evolving. You've got to have something that can encode and have different encodings to have differences that can then get selected. Richard Dawkins says nobody knows how it happened. Somehow, without violating the laws of physics and chemistry, philosophical assumption, a molecule arose that just happened to have the property of self-copying. And then I can explain it all. Kind of thing. Here we go. <laughs> Keith Ward, who's a Christian philosopher, but sort of, sort of in the theistic evolution camp, really. But nonetheless, he says, it seems hugely improbable that in the primal seas of planet Earth, amino acids should meet and combine to form large molecular structures capable of self-replication. The motive for positing some sort of intelligent design is almost overwhelming, he says. This is really the go-to book on this, very recent book, Signature in the Cell by Stephen C. Meyer, who um, uh, studied philosophy of science, P PhD at Cambridge Uni, 
although he's an American, came over here to do his doctorate. Uh, this is a, a thick but well worth reading cutting-edge book on the whole design in the information content of, of the DNA code. And um, I've extrapolated some comments in here, but he's saying the probability of generating a single functional protein, as opposed to ones that wouldn't do anything, of 150 amino acids, fairly sort of regular kind of length, not, not, not weighting it too much, would exceed one chance in 10 to the 180. So exceeding one chance in 10 to the 180, he, he reckons, it's extremely unlikely that a random search of the possible amino acid sequences could generate even a short functional protein in the time available since the beginning of the universe. And he's very careful on, on, on arranging his numbers in that book. I refer you um, to the book. So we could paraphrase Dawkins. Remember back to what he said about Mount Rushmore here. And use exactly the parallel argument. So DNA is clearly designed... Undirected natural causes could have done the same job, but of all the possible ways of arranging amino acids, only a tiny minority would match the biological specification for functionality. Hence, even without knowing the history of DNA, we'd estimate the odds against its occurrence by natural processes as astronomically high. I've just substituted talking about DNA into his argument about Mount Rushmore. So he's got to accept the validity of the of the argument, you can only question the, the numbers that I'm running through it, as it were. Any questions on those? Because I think we'll treat irreducible complexity just as a slightly separate subject, just to cap this off, and then I'll look very briefly, a little more briefly than these two sections, at the is it science question. Are the examples of the evidence you've given us? <coughs> um, just one or two examples of many, or just the one or two that sort of the protagonists of this argument have? They're, or are they just the most convincing ones? The, the ones that I find the most convincing is that the, the basic fine-tuning of the whole shebang from the Big Bang, that's kind of one level of design. The, the more local fine-tuning of having a, a, a habitat that's capable of sustaining life is another. Then you'd look at, could you get the origin of life, just given the things that already exist there working on their own, or do you need intelligence? And particularly that then extends into the, the information content, because the, the origin of life question is essentially the question of how do you get this information carrying uh, digital code using these amino acids? How do you get something that will carry information will differ in its information and then can self-replicate and, and any process of any evolution at all could happen to it because it's a precondition of, of evolution in that sense. Um, the issue of irreducible complexity, there are sort of half a dozen or so top examples that people like Behe will point to, um, but basically the more we look at life, the more incredibly interdependent and complicated we find that it is. And it, probably examples abound uh, hugely. And if you read um, Behe's book, the, the Edge of Evolution, he, he tries using laboratory studies and, and so on to try and draw a kind of vague-ish line of what can microevolution processes, which we know do work, what can they? We know that they can achieve versus what 
what does it seem that they can't achieve? And um, he goes into a discussion there about uh, basically thinking that actually it's the vast minority of things that he thinks evolutionary processes can actually do on their own um, without intelligence being involved. Um, you know, other people might draw the line at a, at a different place, but it's certainly an interesting discussion that we're now able to have on the basis of sort of laboratory experiments of replicating bacteria for 50,000 generations in, in conditions of, of survival pressure to evolve the ability to, to um, access glucose and, and so on. And looking at the, the history of sickle cell anemia and HIV and drug resistance and things he goes into. Um, so, but he would say, actually, there's almost too many examples for me to mention. It's just the more and more we find out about life, the less and less simple and explicable it seems to, to be, would be the claim. Um, yeah. So, uh, irreducible complexity. Um, Charles Darwin, if I can move this on a little bit, to about here. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down in the origin of species. Now, I, I think he's setting the bar a little bit high to say, could not possibly, it would be sufficient to find something that was highly unlikely to have evolved by a series of small step-wise kind of mutations and selective advantages, um, his theory would be under severe strain. <laughs> Put it like that. And Michael Behe, in his 96 book, um, Darwin's Black Box, um, took this from Darwin and tried to firm up the criteria. This is Behe in his book. Um, and apply it to the biology in the cell. And he says, by irreducibly complex, I mean a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to a basic function, they get something done, wherein the removal of any one of the parts causes the system to, accept, uh, to, to cease functioning. So you've got a, a multi-part system where all the bits are integrated together to get something done, and if you take one of the parts away, the system doesn't work anymore, doesn't get it done. Okay? It's a bit like he uses the communal garden illustration of a mouse trap. So there's certain basic things that you've got to have to have this mouse trap working. You've got to have some sort of spring. You've got to have um, a catch. You've got to have a bar, that, that, something that keeps back the the thing that's going to kill the mouse when it springs forward, so that it only springs forward when there's a mouse there. Um, you need the thing that's going to hit the mouse. Um, you've got to have some way of keeping them all together in this integrated hole, so that it doesn't just sort of collapse into a heap before the mouse gets there. So if you take away the spring, or the catch, or the bar, or the thing that's keeping it all together, you don't have a functioning mousetrap anymore, you have some miscellaneous parts that don't do anything. Now, Beaky first of all points out that if a system is irreducibly complex like that, it can't evolve directly. That is, by having that function, by achieving that goal, 
and then gradually getting better at it. A sort of nice direct evolutionary route, because if it's missing any one of the bits, well, it doesn't achieve that goal. So it can't evolve directly. But what about indirectly, as Richard Dawkins would argue in, in Mount Improbable, where he says, well, it's unlikely to evolve indirectly, and as the complexity of the interacting system goes up, the more parts you have, the more tightly integrated they have to be in order to achieve the goal and so on, then the likelihood of such an indirect route where, say, you've got some bits together and they're doing one function and then there's a mutation and it achieves a different goal that's useful and then it changes and it, now it's achieving a third goal that's useful and now it changes and it's the fourth goal and now it's a mousetrap. Whereas before it was a stapler and before that it was a, a, a whatever, you know. That would be an indirect evolutionary route. But every, for Darwin, so every step along the, the route of an evolution of a function has to be useful, has to be selectable, has to at least not be a sufficient disadvantage to the system that it would get weeded out. Um, you know. So the, the prime talked about example is the flagellum rotary motor. And I've got a CGI graphic of it here. It's used by various bacteria to kind of swim around. Uh, and I've got a picture here where you, you have a propeller, you've got a universal joint, you've got stuff keeping it in place, you've got an acid-powered rotary motor powering the, the drive shaft through the universal joint to get the propeller to go. Now, you know, so it's basically an outboard motor that cells use to swim around the place. And if you have an outboard motor and it's got no propeller on it, <laughs> or it's not got a, an engine, um, you've got, uh, well, you're just producing extraneous resources, aren't you? you know. So Behe would say, again, it's not a gaps argument, to say, yes, irreducible complexity counts against an evolutionary explanation, but it also counts in favour of intelligent design, even by just sort of intuitive, you know, look at the thing, um, kind of arguments, but also um, irreducible complexity is, of course, a version of specified complexity because you've got many parts that have to be there in the right order and that's unlikely and they have to hit the independently given functional pattern. It has to do, um, it has to meet the criteria for actually getting that job done. There are certain irreducible parts you need to have an outboard motor and so on. Uh, if you say a mouse trap's the result of unintelligent forces, you'd bear a substantial burden of proof. Um, ditto. I've even been underplaying the complexity because this is the little bit of the machine that, that builds through protein injections the, the flagellum whip, the, the propeller bit, gets built. There's a, a control system and a machine for building the machine in the machine that's regulated by the machine. Um, the more that you look into the system, the more interacting subparts and so on there are that all have to work together for the thing to function. Astonishing stuff, isn't it? Absolutely astonishing. So, um, atheist uh, Massimo Pigliucci, uh, who I've engaged in um, some written debate in the past, he says, for example, Behe does have a point concerning irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity is indeed a hallmark of intelligent design. It's just that he thinks there is no evidence so far of irreducible complexity in living organisms. So, in that sense, you could say the dispute here 
is about what the empirical evidence is. And in that sense, at least, it's a scientific dispute. Is it science? Well, as Thomas Nagel, atheist philosopher, says, a purely semantic classification of a hypothesis, or its denial as belonging or not to science, is of limited interest to someone who wants to know whether the hypothesis is true or false. Things can be true without being science. And indeed, you know that because the claim that nothing can be true unless it is science is self-contradictory, because that's not a scientific claim. It's clearly a philosophical one. So, you know, in one sense, you could kind of say, eh, who cares? But, you know, ID theorists care and other people care and people who are concerned with what are we going to teach in schools and things, that whole debate, which I'm not even going to go there, um, care about that kind of debate. Thomas Woodward uh, makes a very good point, same point that was made by Philip Johnson in a, a book called uh, Darwin on Trial that kind of partly launched the ID movement. He says, evolutionary biology, by limiting itself exclusively to material mechanisms, has settled in advance the question of which biological explanations are true. Apart from any consideration of the empirical evidence, that's armchair philosophy. If you hold the assumption, the explanation for all of that stuff that we just looked at must be that the inherent capacities of nature, chance and law, and the interaction of them, must be capable of producing that, because you've ruled out any other explanation. You kind of are deducing that some kind of Darwinian evolution must be true. And all you're doing is hammering down the details. It's what Richard Dawkins very clearly does in some of his writings, where he says, you know, it used to be reasonable to believe in God because of the design argument, he says. Um, but nowadays, we know that, you know, Paley and all that lot were wrong about this because we've got evolution to explain things. He says, I can't actually give you all the details of how evolution got up the back of what he calls Mount Improbable, how it evolved all these complicated systems, because we haven't found that all out yet. But we know that it must have done it. We know we must have done it. Why? Because the only alternative explanation, he says, is to, be to say something like, you know, design. Or actually he says that God did it. Which, of course, we, we, we know it, that's stupid to believe that. And why? Well, because we've got this better, simpler, alternative explanation for the stuff that we used to attribute to God. Evolution. Which we know must work, must be true, because... The only alternative to evolution would be to say God did it. Yeah. And he's kind of arguing in this massive circle and just begging the question on himself and just kind of establishing by a kind of definitional fiat that these are the only kind of explanations that we're going to allow um, into the, the field of play even before we've actually started looking at the, the data. It's this kind of uh, rule that sometimes gets called methodological naturalism as distinct from actually assuming that the naturalistic material worldview is true, you say, I'm not claiming that materialism's true, I'm just saying that when you do science, you've got to assume that it, that, that it is, or act as if materialism were true. You, you must limit your explanations to explanations that are compatible with a materialistic worldview. Which, of course, doesn't sign you up to thinking that materialism's true. 
So atheist Lawrence, Lawrence Krauss says, scientific method is based on the assumption that natural effects have natural causes. You're only going to appeal to, to natural stuff. That's a, that's a philosophical assumption brought to science, the definition of science. Not something got out of, of doing science. It's just a philosophical dispute about what we're going to allow science to, to be. But many sciences depend upon inferring intelligence. I mean, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Archaeology, cryptography, forensic science, fraud detection, parapsychology, psychology, sociology. All of them use personal agency as explanations for certain phenomena. As J.P. Moreland, philosopher of science, says, there's nothing non-scientific about appealing to personal agency and the like in scientific explanations. It only becomes controversial when you start doing it in cosmology or biology, you know, not in lots of scientific fields. I mean, what justifies that difference? Atheist Bradley Monton very recently started lecturing and wrote a book defending intelligent design theory, although he doesn't fully subscribe to it. Um, but he thinks it's, it is science and it has some serious arguments worth taking more seriously than a lot of the, the kind of dismissers of it do. He wrote a fascinating book called Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. It's quite a slim book, very good read, um, and I think he's quite a, a good writer and so on, and I would recommend reading it. And he says that if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, this rule of what you're going to allow types of explanations to be, he says it follows that the aim of science is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. Science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism, he says, as, a, as an atheistic philosopher of science. <laughs> because the rule means that science is no longer a search for the truth, and surely if science is anything, it should be a search for the truth. Now, that's not a problem. Methodological naturalism couldn't be a problem if naturalism is true, of course. But whether or not naturalism is true is a philosophical question. <laughs> Uh, and do you w really want those contentious philosophical questions skewing what science is, and so on, limiting what you can infer from the evidence? Uh, as Philip Johnson asked, if you to someone who followed this rule, you know, what do you what would you do if the evidence started contradicting your philosophy, which is going to win? Mm. So atheist Victor Stenger in his book The New Atheism is one of that crowd says, I agree with Monton, an avowed atheist incidentally, it's all above board, don't worry, <laughs> that intelligent design is science. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says the presence or absence of the creative superintelligence is unequivocally a scientific question, even if it is not in practice or not yet a decided one. I've got a very brief clip that I'd like to play from the end of the film documentary Expelled, which you may have heard of. So, yeah, that's what I was, the point I was saying earlier about how Dawkins, in a sense, you could subscribe to intelligent design whilst being an atheist, because you can say, the question of who that designer is is a separate question from their being design. And you might think the designer is a supernatural god, 
but I might think it has some explanation compatible with naturalism. After all, atheists have to think that intelligence is something that's compatible with a naturalistic worldview anyway. And I think they're wrong about that because I'm a, I'm a dualist about the whole mind-body question. But naturalists have to assume that intelligence is part of reality that they believe in. So they, so long as they can try and uh, subscribe the design that they detect to an intelligence that's compatible with a naturalistic worldview, they're fine. Uh, and it would be interesting to see, maybe, who knows, the debate might get to a stage where it's an argument between people as to what the best explanation of design is, rather than the question of is there design to be explained. Um, that might be very, very interesting. Um, there, there are even are some um, UFO cults in America, the, the Raelian UFO cult, subscribe to intelligent design, just they think the designers were aliens. You know, I think that raises explanatory issues of its own, but you know, that's certainly compatible with a naturalistic worldview, as Richard Dawkins was saying there. So I've proposed in one of my papers a distinction between hard and soft methodological naturalism. And I say soft methodological naturalism excludes supernatural explanations from science. Okay, fine, I'll give you that. Science mustn't ever mention anything supernatural. But it can mention intelligence. <laughs> so that doesn't exclude SETI and so on, which you clearly want to include within science. But neither does it exclude intelligent design. Strictly speaking, it's got to be allowing that in the door. And if you want to exclude this ID, then you have a great trouble when all those scientific fields that do allow intelligence in, or setting up some sort of non-ad hoc rule that justifies allowing it in sometimes and not when it comes to cosmology or biology, etc. So arguing for intelligent design isn't the same as arguing for supernatural design, let alone divine supernatural de design. A point made by, by Behe. You could have a range of possible designers. Some of you may have heard of the... Uh, the, uh, the noodle spying spaghetti monster parody that's uh, probably around the internet more than in a serious discussion. But, but, you know, it does make a point, and actually one that the ID people have made, that, hey, there, are, there are a whole list here, from God, through you know, Plato's Demiurge, polytheistic gods, angels, demons, spirits, some sort of Im imminent, impersonal, telic force, as the Stoic philosophers in the ancient world used to believe in. Frank Tipler's Omega Point, John Wheeler's participatory universe theory, time-travelling human scientists, aliens from a parallel universe, you know. Um, you can't just make the leap. It would be a gap argument to just make the leap. You've got to have some sort of warrant. If I could put it like this, if you got to the, the ID premise that, therefore, at least one aspect of nature warrants the scientific inference to design, that's the ID conclusion. To get to the theistic conclusion, therefore the best philosophical explanation of nature is broadly theistic, you've got to put in a premise to the effect that the best philosophical interpretation of that intelligent design within nature is broadly theistic. And you'd have to give reasons to justify believing that philosophical premise, which proves that there's a difference between you know, theism or Christianity or <laughs> supernaturalism and ID, because you have to bring in this middle philosophical premise in order to go there. There we go. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <coughs>
with um, uh, Michael Behe, mm. he, he believes in the evolution um, from the sword, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. He believes, obviously, he said like he doesn't believe in the sort of, um, with the complexity, you know, these irreducible um, machines, for example, that must mm. work, must be as they are to work at all, to mm. have functionality. Um, how does he relate those two things? Like, he does believe in in some kind of evolution yeah. and some kind of intelligent input, I suppose. Hmm. Well, th things can certainly be a, a, a combination of explanatory factors. Uh, John Lennox, I think, uses quite a good example where he points, he has one of these uh, mechanical watches that winds when you move around the place. So the chance, in a sense, movements, or you could say, they, he's, but he's not deliberately moving the watch in order to, to wind it. He's just in everyday life, you're moving around the place. And it just so happens that those movements are converted into energy that's stored in the watch by design. The watch is designed, but it relies upon a certain element of chance to keep it going, to, to make it function. Um, so it's not as if um, you have to make an either-or choice between the explanation for something being either design or natural forces. Um, it can be, by design, a combination of the two. You know, monopoly it is a board game that exists by intelligent design, despite the fact that it crucially relies upon the chance throw of dice <laughs> it, it, to function. Okay? It's designed to rely upon chance, which is the lack of teleology. You want a random result, like snakes and ladders or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so you can have a kind of integrated view, which could say, for example, the designer, whoever that is, um, set up a finely tuned universe and a, a finely tuned habitat, made sure life could begin and would, would by its inherent capacities, undergo microevolutionary processes. Um, but that there was certain things that biology, by its own resources, couldn't achieve or wouldn't have achieved in the time that's available, and so on and that the designer made sure that those things happened in order to achieve certain goals. Maybe leaving the detail, some of the fine detail, up to chance and natural selection and so on, um, by design, on purpose. Um, so, and that would be a, a coherent view to have, and then you've got a separate question of, well, how did the designer arrange for the design to get expressed? Does he interfere? From time to time, as it were, does he tinker? Um, is, is he like an artist interacting, interacting with his with artwork or his piano um, in order to produce music, even if it, most of the time it's a piano, pianola? Maybe he's playing a duet with himself. You, know? <laughs> you, know, kind of, um, you can have these combinations of uh, things. The piano, piano, pianola that's, that's producing sounds by design but not by the direct interference there and then of the composer or the designer of the piano. The, the designer encoded that music in it to be expressed at a later time, but then can also join in at a later time. You know, um, So there's, I think, a, a much more range of complexity, of diversity of, of possible views in the field.
to kind of think your way through, which is, in one sense, annoying. <laughs> but, you know, it's certainly more than out of the window, I think, should go the, the old view of kind of, you either subscribe to, to the five-point you know, Darwinian program, or you're a young Earth creationist. And that's how the media love to portray it. You know? And actually, there's a whole spectrum of views, uh, even within ID, even within old Earth creationists, even within young Earth creationists, even within theistic evolutionists, there's a spectrum of, of views to be had. Yeah, it strikes me that um, ID is um, a godsend <laughs> to, to atheists, if you like, strange terms. Mm. Because I, um, I, I a lot of um, atheists must have been denying design for a long time, even though they could observe it, mm. because thinking that if, if they admit to design, they've mm. got to admit to God, and now mm. there's a kind of a safe middle way. We can we could admit design, hmm. but phew, we haven't got to admit to God because there could be some other explanation for the design. So. Well, yeah, uh, in a sense, I I agree with that analysis, but it, it's all going to depend on how safe that non-supernatural interpretation of the design is going to be. How safe it is to say, well, probably aliens, then you know, because I think that's very unsafe. Mm. On philosophical grounds, on, on the grounds of that there are other arguments for God, mm. and that there are not other arguments for aliens, on grounds like, mm. did the aliens themselves not contain any specified complexity, or irreducible complexity, or depend upon the fine-tuning of the universe? You know? Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you say it's aliens all the way down, and an infinite regress? Can, you know, back to the sort of cosmological argument, can you have an infinite regress of contingent causes, and so on? All of those kind of more philosophical arguments, to me, point towards the best explanation of design being a theistic one. I think there are really good reasons for taking a theistic interpretation of ID. It's just that that debate, I think, is clearly it's a philosophical debate that happens on the basis of the scientific ID conclusion. So, ID gives you a launch point for a, a natural theology argument, but it isn't in, in and of itself a natural theology argument. Do you think, I mean, is that partly the reason why there's such an obsession amongst uh, you know, some of the scientific mm. community with trying to find life out there, you know, SETI and the like? Because if they could, <laughs> it would, you know, it would be you know, the first step towards, or, you know, mm. it would be, um, you could you know, start to... So, you know, we have the beginnings of evidence hmm. that there is, you know, another explanation, intelligent design explanation for why we're here. Or, or I, I, I think it's, yeah, I think that whole thing is going to hugely depend upon the philosophical assumptions you bring to the discussion. Because I think if you discovered aliens out there, life on another planet, particularly complex life on another planet, I would say, gosh, look, even more evidence of intelligent design. Mm. Because look at the complexity of these life forms and the irreducible complexity of their functions and the specified complexity they depend upon of their fine-tuning of their habitat. And we, we know from running the numbers that it's really unlikely that any of that could happen by chance and, and, and so on. 
rational naturalist is going to say, look, I told you, you know, that, that nature can easily do it itself. It happened twice, on its own. It's like, well, how do you know that it happened on its own? <laughs> not, not actually from the, the science, from the philosophy that they're bringing to it. So, um, it, it, in a sense, you, you, more evidence, wherever it came from, you know, if it came outside of Earth or, or not, would just be more things to be misinterpreted if you're already misinterpreting the, the evidence. Um, whichever side it is you think is misinterpreting it, they're, they're just going to fit it in with, within the paradigm that they already have. Um, it's not really going to bring anything new to the table to discover life somewhere else, I, th I think. <coughs> Does anyone else have a question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Without keeping you too late. I just to go back to the beginning mm. where we, we, we started talking about the, the, the premises that you had. Mm. Um, the very first one about the reliable design detection criteria. Mm. What are they? It, 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 by that, I yeah. mean, when we use the example of if you recognise the code, mm. then you're on the start of being able to recognise yeah. the real design. Are there... Um, I don't know if I'm using the right mm. terminology here, but are there objective mm. criteria that can be applied to recognising design? Mm. Or are they sort of arbitrary? Are they... Well, I recognise mm. English, so I now yeah. recognise that, but me as a German, yeah. I, I don't recognise that, but yeah. ah, I recognise this over here, because... Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. Because you as a cosmologist can recognise that... Um, if the laws were different than the way they are, or the strength of gravity was 5% different than it is, or whatever, mm. your, uh, the universe that would be described would be one that couldn't sustain life in it. Mm. So the ability to sustain life is the objectively given, given pattern okay. um, in that case. You as an engineer can look at a thing that's functioning as an outboard motor and say, this wouldn't do the job if it didn't have a motor. This wouldn't do the job if it didn't have some sort of propeller mm -hmm. or other. Um, so the hitting the the, the the preconditions of actually functioning, getting the job done. If you look at the code and, and say the ability to specify the, the order that you put the proteins in and the order that the proteins go in, then the bonding forces between them curl it into the right shape to do a certain function done. And it's only a small minority of possible protein shapes that have functions that do things that don't, you know um, it, 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 it's, not a, it's not even an analogy to say it's a four letter code no, it is a four letter code um, GTA, A and C encode the information that gets transcribed and we, that's why we use that language of transcription and information and code and so on and um, because it, was, it was a Bill Gates uh, quote from him who said that um, DNA is um, like um, Microsoft code, only, only much more complicated than anything we've ever done. Uh, kind of <laughs> mm. So it's not, it's not like that instance where you know, the arrow hits the wall and you walk up to it and draw the, the circle around it. It's not that you look at some biological system and then you, you kind of go, oh, it's, oh, it's doing this. Let's pretend that doing this is a specification. You look at it and you go, oh, it's being an outboard motor. 
it seems to me that there are some arguments that you, you have to infer God as being the origin, which is what it's been through, which is the argument about small changes to the universe's physical mm. laws. Because it, it stands to reason that if only small changes would result in an uninhabitable universe, but clearly that if, it, if it's just right, it's mm. a then, then you're talking about a higher being rather than as being mm. intelligent design there rather than being something lower like an alien yeah who wouldn't be able to set the laws in the first place yes um, so there, there are some arguments that where the pattern clearly points to God and there are other ones where it's less mm. discriminating yeah, yes I, I would agree with you that, that certain ones are more discrimination than others but even with the fine tuning you know I could say Plato's Demiurge, who was in Plato's philosophy, he was a sort of divine-like being who arranged the pre-existing matter of the universe into um, forms after the pre-existent, uh, the forms, the ideals of things, the essences of things that, that existed out there. So that it's not that that God created the stuff of the universe. He, but he created the arrangement of the stuff of the universe. Um, you know, now, it would be possible to, to say, well, maybe there's just this... Um, uh, universe is coming and going in an infinite kind of uh, arrangement, and then this, this being comes along and sort of puts it into... whacks it into shape. In a way that it, it you know... <laughs> um, or uh, that th- you could there might be some sort of wriggle room there. I think it would be implausible wriggle room, and I'm going to agree. Of course, I'm going to agree with you that saying God did it is, in the end of the day, going to be the most plausible explanation. But it's uh, it's not one that you can arrive at simply by saying, um, well, because it's defining the whole universe, then. God's the only possible candidate designer in the frame. You know, and it's not beyond the wish of, of atheist philosophers or Plato or Stoics or whoever to think up some other non-divine, in our sense, candidate that you'd then have to kind of give some reason for preferring God over the rival. Because there are, there are a lot of riddles in science. And, sure. Um, one example being parallel um, dimensions. Mm. Called the parallel universes, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Parallel dimensions. There's no way of measuring them, mm. but you're invoking them, yeah. you know, presupposing them, in order to explain why particles appear and disappear mm. amongst other things. And so, one of your possible exp- um, presuppositions is there is a God and He's mm. controlling it. Mm. There is no other dimensions than what you can mm. um, sense, and therefore, mm. because God's given you the opportunity to sense everything, and therefore, this is just evidence of. God controlling the universe where he set the laws but still has some involvement in it. Mm. Or you can take the naturalistic view which is mm. uh, these, these other dimensions which we can't mm. measure so we've yeah. just imagined them yeah. and um, we've no way of knowing whether they're true or not. Mm. And that's, a class, that's a classic scientific rhythm. Yeah. I think that the positing of it, it's like saying if there were enough other different universes out there it becomes no longer unlikely that by chance there'd be one that hit the specification for life. So you're undermining the complexity component of the design inference 
by saying there are lots of other rolls of the dice out there, kind of thing. But that's a bit like saying, as you say, you know, um, a million monkeys at typewriters for long enough could produce the works of William Shakespeare. But when I look at the works of William Shakespeare, I don't say, aha, there must be a billion monkeys somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I need independent evidence of the existence of a billion monkeys at enough typewriters who have been working away for long enough if I'm going to prefer that over the William Shakespeare explanation. Um, and it still could be the case, even if you had all the you know, loads and loads of universes, that you might require fine-tuning to get those. Yes, uh, in, in the physical systems that posit loads of universes, you have some sort of physical system that produces different universes that itself has to be fine-tuned anyway, so it pushes it back a level. Plus, actually, uh, I, I'm rather fond of the, the, the epistemological argument that, that, that says, OK, if you're going to say... There are enough different universes out there to make the occurrence by chance of our universe not improbable, so that I can no longer infer design from looking at our universe. Okay? Because there's that much chance can do stuff out there. Then I'm no longer justified when I look at the spaghetti poster to say, oh, it must have been design. Because someone's going to say, well, in a parallel universe out there, you know, there, there's a lot of photographers tipping out cans of spaghetti that didn't spell that. And so, it's, of course, it's possible that by, likely that by chance one of those cans would spell, you know. <laughs> so if you, if you give yourself enough luck in explaining things, you undermine our ability to rationally infer design for anything. Yeah. And yet we always are rationally, you know, we know that we can rationally infer that things are designed just from looking at them. <laughs> And the but I say but Occam's Razor says pick the, the simplest adequate explanation. Yes. If you've got competing explanations, both of which are equally adequate, but one simpler, go for the simpler one. But I would simply say but I, but I would say in, in this case, because of the, we know we can infer design like that. People are doing it all the time, and that quite that actually, the oh, it was just luck explanation isn't actually um, adequate to our experience because so if it, because if that explanation were true, it would undermine the rationality of the design inferences which we know we rationally make. We we have a um, a, a maxim in engineering mm. when we're doing design. That is actually, I hadn't realised this before, but it actually mm. Occam's razor. It's, mm. it's the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid, mm. which most people know who've worked in engineering. Mm. But it, it's basically that, which is that if you keep the design simple, mm. nine times out of ten, possibly ten times out of ten, it will be the best option. Mm. Because if you make it too complex, then it defeats its purpose. Mm. And the same applies in explanations, so that if mm. you've got something that's simple, mm. it's much more likely, in, in fact it's to the point of being mm. the only answer, whereas a complex explanation mm. is fun to go through intellectually, but it's not yeah. really a, a plausible answer. Yeah. But this is why I think it, it's, it's crucial to bear in mind the, the adequacy component of Occam's razor as being the more important of the two. Because I can happily grant that a, a metaphysically naturalistic worldview is simpler than a theistic worldview, because it only mentions one kind of stuff that exists. <laughs> only natural stuff exists. Yeah. You know, in that sense, at least, it's a heck of a lot simpler yeah. than a, a theistic worldview, 
where I believe in a god and angels and you know souls and and stuff. But for me, the, que- the question is: Is the naturalistic worldview as adequate at explaining stuff? Does it have the explanatory power and scope and so on that the theistic explanation does? And there, I think that's where the, the theistic explanation trumps naturalism. Thanks, Peter. Should we uh, let you have a break there? And you have a break as well. Thank you very much for for your attention and excellent questions. Thank you very much for coming in.